0: This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. But I will be reading only through the beginning of verse 9. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out in the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? This is God's word.
1: Great poet T.S. Eliot once wrote, Oh my soul, be prepared for him who knows how to ask questions. You may wonder why Tiffany stopped reading before the passage concluded. And it is because Jesus asks us a question. He means for us to think on it and to respond for ourselves, not do as we might typically do in elementary school or even in Bible study small group, and that is wait for the teacher to answer. We're supposed to consider it for ourselves. And Jesus asks a number of heart-piercing, soul-rattling questions in Mark's Gospel. And that it would be just a wonderful exercise, which you could do, by the way, is take a Sunday afternoon like today, And just spend some time thinking for yourself, responding for yourself to some of these questions in Mark's Gospel. Like in Mark 3.33, he answered them saying, who are my brothers and sisters? Mark 4.40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Mark 8.12, he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Mark 8.29, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Mark 10.51, Jesus said to them, what do you want for me to do for you? And last week he looked at Mark 11.30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? These questions... Ask the person to look at him or herself in relationship to God. But this question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Ask the person to look at God in relationship to us. To put him or herself in the owner of the vineyard's shoes. To put ourselves in God's shoes, as it were. And consider... What should be an appropriate response? What would be the appropriate response of God? So, what is it? What will the owner of the vineyard do? That's why we stop there. Knowing this is a uh, parable not yet covered in any of the kids' Bibles we use with our two boys. Uh, One night at dinner this week, it was just the boys and I, Katie was at a function, so I decided I'd try to tell them this parable without the use of the Bible, because it's pretty simple. And so I used whatever resources I had available to tell them. The resources at my disposal were Legos and ridiculous voices, so I put those bad boys to work. And there we were, you know, having our salad, building a wine press, you know, they don't even know what's wine? I don't know. So... um, in part because I did this because I knew that they hadn't heard Jesus' answer in Scripture before. Nor had they had a Bible out in front of them, so they couldn't peek ahead at the teacher's answer. They just had to respond as normal people, responding to what is very, a very normal relationship in life, right? An owner and a tenant. So how did they respond? How did my kids respond to this story? And this question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? They were eager, first of all, to respond. I think because they too are made in God's image. And God is a just God. And so we, made in his image, care about justice being done. And so they were eager to respond. What will the owner do that uh, beat them? was their first answer. Secondly, kick them out and keep the vineyard for himself. Stay there himself. Thirdly, another answer they gave was kill him. Kill, kill all the tenants. And finally, just to add in a silly answer, that's the wrong thing to do, man. That was their fourth answer. And after a long pause, one set of eyes lit up at the table because one of these children knows how to give a good Sunday school answer. And he said, oh, 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 wait a minute. The owner will say, I forgive you. You see, Jesus' final parable, his final parable, and the resulting question is tailor-made for the church-going, the religious, even the Christian of the 21st century. Some of us have been so wired to see only the I forgive you response of God, right? To the point where my son is saying, oh yeah, I know the Sunday's going, to I forgive you. We're so wired to see only the mercies, the grace of God, all of which, by the way, are true and present here in this story, right? Where we see the persistent patience of the owner going back again and again to appeal to the tenants. But we are largely unwilling to see the just hostility and real wrath of God. Even now, you probably cringe at that word, at me bringing it up. You're, you hear that word and you're like, man, I'm dreading the next 30 minutes. Wrath of God. Yeesh. And it's okay. If you want to resist what I say, that is one thing. But don't resist Jesus' question. What will the owner of this vineyard do? Jesus' own answer, to which we honestly not in agreement. He will come and destroy the tenants. He will come and destroy the tenants. So let's first talk this morning about God's just hostility towards evil. God's just hostility towards evil. When the Bible speaks, I know of God's anger, His wrath, His just punishment. As Christians, we get a little embarrassed, don't we? Especially when we're around other people. We kind of get like, ooh, let's just read quickly past this so we can get to the good news of the story. We might even skip past it or mumble our words. It seems archaic and barbaric so a lot of churches avoid it like the plague, ten of which are famous examples of wrath. <laughs> but the reality is the old covenant that God worked out with his people has more curses than blessings by a count of 54 to 14. There are more explicit references in the Bible to God's wrath and to his love. And even after the coming Prince of Peace, we have this steady stream of nightmarish images about his return. In the apocalyptic vision we now know as the book of Revelation. All of this is in here. All of this is part of the message. yet we resist it. Why can't a supposed god of love, we ask, just accept everybody? Let everybody in. Two reasons. Tell that to a father who watches an ISIS militant scream and then behead his child. Why not just let anyone in? Tell that to families of those who brainwashed loved ones to death by the likes of David Koresh and Jim Jones. Why not just let anyone in? Tell that to a daughter who asks her dad if he would just spend some time with her. Ever, but he never does. And so she waits in a foster home for anyone. You see, God's love is also in his just punishment towards evil. In fact, here's the second reason. God's standard starts far higher than those bottom-of-the-barrel acts of evil. The prophet Habakkuk says this, that Your eyes, O Lord, are too pure to look on evil. They're too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So he doesn't. He doesn't tolerate it. The parable that Jesus tells here in Mark chapter 12 has its origins in the Old Testament prophetic book of Isaiah chapter 5. And you don't have to turn there. Just listen, if you would, for evidence of the wrong, persistent wrongdoing and just punishment. Listen now for the just punishment. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. My beloved has a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land. He cleared its stones. The Lord planted it with choice vines. In the middle, He built a watchtower and carved a winepress in nearby rocks. You see how Mark 12 comes out of this. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were wild and sour. Now you people of Jerusalem, you have heard the case. You be the judges. What more could I have done to cultivate a rich harvest? Why did my vineyard give me wild grapes when I expected sweet ones? Now. This is what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will tear down its fences and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls. Let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place. I will not prune the vines or hoe the ground. I will let it be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no more rain on it. This is the story of the Lord's people. They are the vineyard of the Lord Almighty. Israel and Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected them to yield a crop of justice, but instead he found what? Injustice, bloodshed. He expected them to find righteousness, but instead he heard only cries of oppression. So in summary, this is what I'm going to do with my vineyard. God says, tear down, destroy, break down, trample. Just level it all. To which we would say, as we do in Jesus' parable, to his question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Yes, that makes sense. I agree. We say this because we too are made in God's image. And God is just. So we care about justice. We care to see it be done. Yet it feels incomplete. God cannot and does not build a people on being just and fair. Because if he did, none of us could stand. None of us would be part of that house. None of us would be built on that cornerstone. And so, thankfully, Jesus continues in verse 9. Let's keep reading. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and... And here comes the surprise of the story. For all of Jesus' listeners, here comes the surprise of the story. And He will give the vineyard to others. In other words, God will judge justly and still give generously. Both. Destroy the the, the tenants who rejected him, and yet still give the status of being God's people to others. Imagine for a moment getting abused, humiliated, going to the funerals even of seven people who you love dearly, including your son. What would you do? What would you do to such people who lived on your property? You would shut it down, right? You would shut down the vineyard. You wouldn't entrust yourself to people again. You would build bigger fences and say to people, go away when they came near the door. And yet, that's not the message that Jesus gives. The message in a nutshell is this. Jesus Christ crucified is the marvelous solution for all hostility. God's, my own, and theirs. Jesus Christ crucified is the marvelous solution for all hostility. You can think of the cross like a sponge. Jesus absorbs in Himself the hostility of the righteous judge towards us. He absorbs in Himself my personal hostility towards God. My hostility towards doing things His way. Jesus can absorb the hostility of others, them, towards us who claim to love Christ. Why can Jesus do this? Because Jesus is the perfect tenant. He is the perfect tenant. Think about it. He's the perfect steward of the time given to Him on this earth. He bore fruit. He gave back to the Father all credit and glory that was due to Him. He willingly received not only God's messengers, like John the Baptist, but also sinners who didn't deserve to be in His presence. And others thought likewise. Why are they with you? Yet, he gets torn down. He gets thrown out. He gets destroyed so that those who trust in him never have to. Such a solution, Jesus says, is worthy of the praise prophesied of him long ago, repeated here from Psalm 118 The stone that the builders rejected has become. The cornerstone. You see that there in Mark 12? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. You see that? This is actually all part of God's plan. That's what makes it so marvelous. And the rejection and the humiliation and the turning our back towards Jesus is exactly what the Father uses to bring about justice. Towards him and mercy for us. It's marvelous. Fiorello LaGuardia is a mayor of New York City. You may have heard of his airport. He's a mayor of New York City during the worst days of America's Great Depression and uh, all of World War II. He was a colorful character. He rode New York City fire trucks. He raided speakeasies with the police, places where there was illegal alcohol at that time. he He read Sunday comics on the radio to little kids when the newspapers shut down on strike. In January of 1935, he turned up at a night court that served the poorest ward of the city. This wasn't unusual for him to visit these courts. On this particular night, LaGuardia dismissed the judge for the evening, He took over the bench himself, Within a few minutes, a tattered old woman came forward to the bench. She was charged with stealing a loaf of bread. When LaGuardia began to ask her about the circumstances behind this, she told LaGuardia that her Her daughter's daughter's husband had deserted her. Her daughter was sick and her two grandkids were starving. In other words, she's in trouble. But the shopkeeper from whom the bread was stolen refused to drop the charges. He told guardia, look, it's a bad neighborhood, Your Honor. He turned to the woman and says, I- I've got to punish you. We've got to punish you. We've got to teach these people a lesson. But guardia, he decided, oh. He turned to the woman and said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. $10 or 10 days in jail. But even as he was pronouncing the sentence, the mayor was was already reaching into his pocket, stepping down from the bench. He extracted a bill, tossed it into his famous hat, and he says, Here now is the $10 which I myself will pay. See, friends, Jesus stepped down from heaven's judgment bench to take a just punishment upon himself. And in doing so, he satisfies the hostility of God's law towards the accused. He takes away the hostility of the accuser who demands justice. He also absorbs the hostility of the offender towards her accuser. Everyone can forgive and be forgiven because, because someone willingly absorbed the cost and with it, all the hostility. See that? And you might say, Man, that is such good news. That is such good news, especially for everyone out there, man, who just who just has that hostility still in their lives, who stores up, you know, hatred and anger in them. In them. You see, friends, Jesus Christ crucified a solution, not just for God's hostility, but for my hostility, for your hostility. You got to give the religious leaders some credit. They do not deflect Jesus' parable to somebody else and say, oh yeah, Jesus is talking about them. He's not talking about me. Look at that in verse 12. They were seeking, after he tells this parable, and he's done speaking, it says they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and they went away they recognize that Jesus' parable is their past history and their present history. First, their past history. They recognize that this parable, which is interesting, is a history of God's people. In about 11 verses, a history of God's people. See, the Hebrew people, having given freely the designation, the people of God, freely, they were given, they were a good vineyard Set up well, given good laws, a good land from which God drove out seven stronger nations before them. He consistently passed over more powerful and attractive nations like Egypt, Syria, Rome, Greece. These were empires. Yet God chose them. Even still, they reject God again and again and again. Then they reject his attempts to reconcile with them through the prophets. The prophets are sent as to to warn, to encourage, to spur people back toward a right relationship with God. What was called the covenant. To get them back through warning, encouragement, spurring on different means they used with the same purpose. Getting them back in a relationship with God. Now we know the fate, ultimately, of only two relatively insignificant prophets. Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, who is stoned, 2 Chronicles 24. And Uriah, who dies by the sword, Jeremiah 26. But we actually know from pretty reliable extra-biblical history that Amos, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, all killed by the people they were sent to restore. In fact, here in verse 4, one who is struck on the head, Did you see this in verse 4, may refer to John the Baptist, a prophet whose head is fatally struck. They recognize Jesus' parable is for them. It's their past history, but they also recognize it's their present history. You recall that since Jesus has entered Jerusalem during this week of Passover, he has been nothing but deserted and rejected. Then he uses this fig tree one day on the way into Jerusalem and overturning money tables in the temple to demonstrate that taking refuge in mere religious ritual, right, checking off the box, checking off the list of church-going and charity-giving, isn't going to please God nor change you. He says there's a new way. Trust in a Savior. Trust in me. Trust in a person. A religious leader don't like that. Because they were persons and they were important and people looked to them. See? So they planned to destroy Jesus. They fear that with Jesus it's like an all or nothing proposition. You have to trust your life to him. They fear. And so they start to test him as we saw last week. They start to test him with these questions just to see, can I keep a little bit of power, a little bit of influence, a little bit of my kingdom for myself? And when Jesus definitively answers, in effect, no, you have to trust completely to me. They want to kill him. He tells this parable. They will kill the son and throw him out of the vineyard. So they recognize Jesus' parable as their past history, their present history. Do you recognize Jesus' parable as part of your history? When it comes to hostility, anger, hatred toward God, like David of old is told by his friend Nathan, we too must be told directly, thou art the man. Or thou art the woman. Remember David? I'm so angry. Who would who, who would take this one, this man's one little lamb? Ah, but David, you're the man. We hardly think such a parable can refer to us. But consider, my friend, every time the Holy Spirit has drawn near to nudge you away from your work or from your first love. And he says, he says come with me. Come be with me. To which you've responded, no, no. This is my time. This is my job. I'm dealing with my concerns now. Sending him away empty-handed. Reflect In your own life, on the sixth or seventh time, a person wronged you to which you finally said, man, I've had enough. Enough forgiveness. It has its limits. And in doing so, striking the Savior and treating His entire good news message about forgiveness with contempt. Recall the time you you witnessed the life of one of His loving their spouse and their kids self-sacrificially. Loving their neighbor as themselves doing life with integrity in the name of man. I can't relate. I don't want to be a part of that. You push them away. Treating one of his people with contempt. My, fr- my friend, thou art the man. Each of us art the man. In fact, every every theologian I respect, every good pastor who's preaching I've sat under, every wise Christian at some point spoke to the need to recognize That we were once hostile in mind, as the Bible puts it. Hated and being hated. A child of wrath, justly under the judgment of God. And the need to sit with that for a bit. That's all true. On our own. That was all at least true of us once. We need to not be too quick to rush ahead to the hallelujahs of Christ's atoning work. Don't sprint ahead to the salvation amens without really sitting with the wrathful realities both of our own hearts, what's in here, and what we've been saved from. As it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, the wrath to come. Sit with that. It's heavy, isn't it? Then take comfort. There is a marvelous and cornerstone solution to put your hostility upon Jesus Christ crucified. Who wants to take it? Who wants to know you? Who wants to save you? And there's finally, there's their hostility. The hostility of the world, I mean. The final plan concocted by tenants in this parable is really weird. All right, It is a strange plan. If you're going to Please God, please the people around you and stay in power. It is a weird plan, the religious leaders, that we see in verse 12. They recognize they're in the wrong. They recognize they are under the judgment of God, yet they have no idea what to do with that judgment, other than act and, and lash out with hostility. And so, in verse 12, they say they seek to arrest him. They leave him. They go away from him. Rejecting Jesus, Right? In the parable, it's very similar. The tenant's plan is absurd. We're going to kill the son so the owner will give us the property. Can you imagine such a thing? How many of you have landlords? How, there might be some of you who want to, you want to be in Canaan for a long time. Maybe you want to buy that home someday. You like it so much. We thought about that. Can you imagine? i got a good idea. I'm going to kill my landlord. He's going to take the property. I'm sure he'll be fine with that. Could you imagine? First of all, I'm sorry for some of you who are landlords. You're like, oh my gosh. (laughs) Look out today. It is an absurd plan. An absurd plan. They they almost treat God like the God of deism. He started the world, made a bunch of mechanistic laws that he has to keep. And he will never intervene. So though the son is hated, killed, mistreated, he's obligated, the owner's obligated to leave the inheritance with us. You know, just because he's supposed to. It's in the contract. No. So they acknowledge God and his judgment, yet they also seek his reward with their own plan, blowing off his plan. It's this kind of spiritual schizophrenia, which at first seemed bizarre to me until I, I began to be reminded that this schizophrenia is still prevalent today. There's a willingness to be spiritual, And willingness to still be moral, isn't there? After the laws of God. There's a willingness to pray on special occasions and think on heaven during somber occasions. Reckoning all of these as part of the contract with God. This makes me good with God. Yet, he offers his exclusive solution, which are none of those things. His exclusive solution is his son. He is the way. He is the gate. He is the door. And the world gnashes its teeth at that plan and at him and then also all of those who represent him. It says, no. That is not the way. That is not the only way for me to get to God. Don't be so intolerant. Don't be so bigoted. It's weird because people still don't know how to respond to sitting under God's judgment. They sense that it's real. So they say yes to a way to God of their own devising, personal spirituality, good works, but a vehement no to the marvelous solution that the Father has provided in Jesus Christ crucified. My friends, the testimony of the New, the New Testament is really clear. If you aim to represent Jesus, they will hate you too. Luke 6, John 7, John 17, 2 Timothy 3.12, the list goes on and on. And not just straight up, get out of my grill, stop talking to me about Jesus variety. Passive aggressive hatred, whisper hatred, avoidance hatred, uninvited hatred, being the butt of little jokes on the side, hatred. Dropping lies or half-truths, be it about your job performance or the hypocrisy you supposedly show. The world's going to hate you for representing Jesus. And we think like the owner of the story, surely they will respect me, right? No, people are going to hate you too. The question is, how will you respond? What will you do with that hostility? Because none of us can bear that weight, right? You know that feeling when someone casts you to the side, kicks you to the curb, disrespects you openly, or treats God so poorly. Just sits with you. Took an early walk around our neighborhood at 6 a.m. this morning. Uh, some of you didn't know there's such a thing as 6 a.m. on Sunday mornings, and I can just affirm there is. All right. I ran into a neighbor friend of mine who uh, went to two funerals yesterday. One of which was for uh, Solomon Webster, a young Kamanian gold medal winner at the uh, Special Olympics back in 2010. He was murdered very recently. And we were talking about the survivors. And we were talking about justice and specifically, how do you get justice towards those who hurt you? Who show host- such hostility to you and someone you love? One thing each of us has tried in our lives is to put ourselves behind the bench, judge and jury, which is similarly a weight none of us can bear. With every word we judged, it'll be used to judge us. There's another solution. It's a marvelous solution. Put their hostility upon Jesus Christ crucified. This is why Jesus is so insistent in the New Testament It's not you they hate. It's me. Because only he can bear the weight of their hostility. You and I can't. So give it to him. The Bible has a very practical way to do this, by the way. It's praying the so-called imprecatory psalms. You know those psalms, you ever read them? That sounds so angry. They're like, whoa, is this in the Bible? They startle you? They're there because God alone is able to bear the weight of our judgment and hostility towards hostility endured. Does that make sense? We pray them to give them to God. So I'm just going to read one for you as I close. This is Psalm 69, three through nine. Psalmist says, listen, to, as he gives the hostility he endures back to God, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What did I steal that I must now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. You know the wrongs that I've done. They're not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor. Through me, O God of Israel, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. It's your sake that I dishonor has covered my face. He's going to go on to say, "Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. You take it. May there can't be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their in your tents." Add to them punishment upon punishment, but they have no acquittal from you. He puts judgment back in God's hands, but listen to how he concludes his thought. For the zeal of your house consumes me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. You know who that's said about later? Romans 15.3. To refer to Jesus. The reproaches that you experience, the reproaches about the Father, have all fallen on Jesus. The same thing in Psalms 2 22, 10. In other words, these Psalms put the weight of our own hostility and that of others back on God. They're all nearly all messianic Psalms, they all point back to Jesus. This is no accident. God has been preparing. A marvelous solution for all hostility from the beginning. Jesus Christ crucified. Justice and mercy satisfied. The cornerstone upon which he builds his church. The power to show mercy to others and lead the judgment of hostility to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize that there is a judgment. We all listen to this parable about the hostile tenants and we nod our heads that you do something about the hostility in this world that you will judge it that one day you'll wring out that sponge on those who don't trust in you and yet we also recognize Jesus there's been such hostility in our own hearts maybe even now there's such hostility that we're holding on to But for all of us, we have been hostile in mind. We have been hated and hate one another. So we thank you that you did something about it, that you were just, that you were holy, but that you also sent your Son to absorb that justice and that holiness that we couldn't bear. Thank you for Jesus Christ crucified the perfect solution for the hostility of this world. Help us put the hostility that we experience from others back on you. Help us pray these kinds of psalms because we cannot bear the judgment, the hostility. So help us give it back to you and be an example of Christ and of mercy to them, knowing that we can leave justice to you. Help us keep looking at Jesus Christ crucified, our cornerstone. That plan is marvelous in our eyes. Amen.